Whatever's in the show is in the show, my friends. I'm okay. topping up because I'm going to need a drink here. <laughs> this episode's going to get too heavy for me. I might be. Okay. I'm here to bring the noise. Yes. So, everyone, uh, we'd like to introduce you to Jonathan Arkell, who, um, I mean, so tell us a little about yourself, Johnny. Oh, God. Where do I even start? I contain multitudes. Uh, I've been a computer guy since I was like an eight-year-old kid. I got my start on the ColecoVision Atom, which is like completely insane. So uh, back in the day, my favorite languages were Logo and uh, Basic, I'm afraid to admit. But uh, because I'm ever a mutant, uh, I didn't get a PC when I was a kid. I got an Amiga, and I was an Amiga kid up until my mid-20s, until I finally said, okay, guess I finally have to do this, where it was just like it was untenable. Professionally speaking, I started uh, building web pages in my early 20s. Uh, I don't have a college education. Uh, I was lucky to graduate from high school. Uh, my brain just isn't the same as everyone else's, apparently, so that just affected things. But yeah, so I built web pages uh, since uh, my early 20s, taught myself more back end programming, started with Java, moved to PHP. Don't hold it against me. Uh, eventually, I grew up. Um, and I decided that I wanted to like really understand programming, so I taught myself Scheme uh, along with uh, the structure interpretation of computer programs. And I guess in a lot of ways that just broke my brain even further. And uh, I am forever a mutant. Um, people would say things like, uh, "We need you to help us design our crazy telephone billing reconciliation application." I'm like, "What? Yeah, we have this application. It's a whole bunch of custom code." We need you to design the interface. And I was like, well, I guess. And then from there, I, I've always just kind of been interested in that interface between human and com- computer. So it was like, well, this is a natural fit. But again, I have no college education. I have no structured training around this. I just have a love for design and programming and psychology and neuroscience and society and culture and a whole bunch of stuff. For fun, I like to draw and make music, especially techno. So, Jonathan, like, you're a self-proclaimed mutant. But when you say mutant, like, I I get the sense that you're proud of that. Like, you're proud to be different and against the norm and be able to, like, conquer this world outside of the the conventional way. Am I reading that right? Am I allowed to swear? Yeah, sure. Fuck, uh, yes. <laughs> I mean, it, which admittedly, as a, as a UX person, is kind of not right, because the whole point of UX is being able to communicate with and be empathetic with the largest number of people. But, I mean, I my brain's my brain, and this is the one I got, right? And I can only slowly kill it with alcohol. So, I mean, this is, this is what I got. So... so- if someone I'm truly wanted to like insult you, Jonathan, would they call you average or conventional? Like, would those be derogatory terms for you? They could be. Yeah, my wife likes to to do that to me a lot. She's like, "Oh, you're normal. Get over that, yourself." Normal. Which, I love that one. <laughs> okay, which is, okay. It's fun. Great. Wow. Uh, you said a lot of things that I didn't understand, so I want to backtrack a bit. Uh, Amiga versus PC. Is this like before I was born, or like? What does that mean? I, I'm old as dirt, so quite possibly before you were born. 
Uh, for okay. the youngins, what, is, what does this mean? <laughs> so around, I want to say 84, 85, some maniacs, I believe at Williams Entertainment, I think they made pinball machines, they definitely made arcade machines, decided they wanted to like come out with their own home computer system. Mm-hmm. And this is going to like, this is going to tear the roof off the mother, right? It was going to blow everyone's mind. And it did. It was like a, an extremely powerful machine. It was like, it had 16 bit architecture, which like, whoa, hold the phone. Um, yeah. And so out comes this machine. It's like, it's great at sound. It's great at visuals. You can like buy a little thing and you can do video production with it. Not great. But you can, like, overlay titles on top of videos and plug it into your VCR and, like, do all this crazy stuff that, like, Mm -hmm. you know, was, I I mean, before that, we were using Apple IIs, Commodore 64s. Like, this was, like, unheard of. If I recall correctly, Andy Warhol was actually one of the early sponsors of Amiga, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, so I kind of got into it a little later, um, like, around uh, early 90s. Um, but still, so, you know, those days there were people were using mostly PCs. It was mostly a, a 386 world. Yeah. Um, but they like the PCs just couldn't hold a candle with these Amiga devices. So right? how did you like, how do you remember picking the Amiga? Do you remember like the thought process or, or like why? Uh, why not do what everyone else is doing? Outing myself as a complete and total nerd here. When I was 13, uh, Keller used to have these computer competitions. Cool. So everybody would like lug their giant computers out to the Mount Royal College. Back then, it was an this actual college. So cool. <laughs> yes. And like all these like terrible nerdy kids would like get together and like it's like a science fair except it's programming, right? But uh, this these one set of kids from some Catholic school were using Amigas because their computer teacher was also really into Amigas, and I was like, what are these things? And so. I just, I researched the hell out of them, right? Because I wanted to know, and I really wanted to have one, right? Because, I mean, the graphics were insane. The the sound was insane. And, like, the more I learned about these things from the library, because you know, old as dirt, and we didn't have the internet, um, <laughs> the more I learned about these things, the more in awe I was at, like, the, the sheer power that these machines could just have and do. And then I started examining the architecture, and, and like, it's wild, like, the metal had like the sound chips and the graphic chips like right there. And these were like processors that were like companion processors to the main CPU. And it like, you don't have that now. Right. And, wow. And you appreciated that at that point, like that was, you could appreciate like the engineering behind that, the actual decisions in the hardware at that point. Right. It was yeah. more than just what was popular. Yeah. It yeah. Was, and was it like you physically touching the Amiga at that at that uh, like get together, or or what was it like? Just the fact that it existed, you had to know what it was. Yeah, it, it was the the fact that it existed that and I, like that it could do so much insane yeah. cool stuff. Right. Like that's I was looking at my own little Adam. That's like you know, at that point it was like almost ten fifteen years old. I'm like, I mean, I love the thing, but it's old as crap and it's not doing very much. And like these things were just like, like they were supercomputers. It was unreal. Hmm. Do you think that's still true today? Like, are we surrounded by devices that are very popular, but when you compare them to like these niche devices, they don't even compare. 
And if that is true, like what what examples are, are present today that you guys notice? That's a, I don't know. Uh, computing today is so much different than, you know, 30 years ago. Like it's just it's such a radically different game. A lot of it is just the the, the nature of the hobbyist has, has changed, which I think is, is some of it. And just like the, the the volume of changes is so completely bonkers. Like yeah. if you look at the the difference in computing from like nineteen eighty with like you know yeah. the birth of the TRS eighty to nineteen ninety, which is like the birth of the World Wide Web, it's like that's a massive, massive difference. In a short amount of time. In a short amount of time. Relatively so then short amount of time. Thirty years, yeah. it's like what are we even? I kind of in my gut want to say like look out for the Raspberry Pi. Okay. Why? Like it seems, it seems like that's got that same like deep hobbyist energy that like something like the old Amigas or you know the older computers had like that. The homebrew club. The, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Like like that, just just getting right in, and it also seems to me like that's like an understandable piece of hardware, and like y- you can't understand what's going on in the hardware of a Mac, right? And it's. Yeah. Well, I think it'd be even challenging to understand like what's going on inside the hardware of the PC, right? So the 15-year-old Johnnies that are out there right now, you're telling them, here's what you should go like look up tonight, and and be inspired by, and don't follow these trends. Like, don't follow the Apple trends. Go check out, go check out the Raspberry Pi. Is that what you're you're recommending? Is that the Amiga of today? Uh, well, again, it's 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 tough to say because like if we were to go find like. 15 year old me right now. I'm, that's what I I'm doing. Still... I'm talking to 15 year old you right now. What, what are we telling Johnny? <laughs> what are we showing him that he hasn't seen yet or her? Like, whatever. Well, the thing is, it's like a Mac or even a, um, a Windows machine right now could like run enough software to, for instance, like produce an entire album from scratch and also do all the cover art for it and then also do like the full that's distribution insane. for it. That's like, so crazy. That, that's kind of insane, right? You can't, yeah. you cannot do that on a Raspberry Pi. Like, you, it's not possible, right? It's close, but it's not possible. Maybe so. Right, <laughs> <laughs> so, like, it depends on what. What do you want to get into programming? Then, yeah, like a Raspberry Pi. Like, this is covered ground for you guys. Like, yeah, just go get a Raspberry Pi, write some code, it'd be awesome, right? Also, like, getting into deep level electronics, like a Raspberry Pi, for sure, right? You can do all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Right. Like what? What do you want to do? That's uh, you have to answer that question, and from there, like the, everything opens up for you. Yeah, the imagination of like that fifteen-year-old in terms when you ask that fifteen-year-old, like, what do you want to do? The world, like, I just—it's a huge world of things of what you want to do. At this point, I'm like polluted with experience, so I'm so I'm so focused on what I can do, not what I want to do. And so, yeah. hopefully, we hit that Johnny out there today. <laughs> Shout out to 15-year-old Johnny who's out there listening right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm you from the future. We we do live in the future now, and I think about it. I mean, we, again, we we talk about the stuff that you could do all this stuff on, and we're really only scratching the surface of what it's capable of. And trying to describe the specifications of a current day, like what you would just buy at the store. So, you know, for a few hundred bucks, you could buy something that has a half terabyte of space, several processors, all this. Go back to someone in, you know, 1984 and say, guess what you're going to be able to afford? <laughs> like, 
You're never going to believe it. They'll just practically be given it away, and you'll be upset that it doesn't load uh, videos of cats fast enough. <laughs> well, and that's that's the other thing. It's like I kind of look at what computers were capable of back then, and like what really pushed the limits. And now I look at what computers do now, and I'm like, well, I mean, there's differences. Don't get me wrong, but also. It feels like, and again, maybe a lot of this is old man uh, yells at cloud, but it feels <laughs> like we've missed a lot, and we've we've kind of given up a lot. Let me give you a for instance. Let me like break it down into like something that that, that we can all latch onto. So, the Amiga had this scripting language called AREX, and it's it was Amiga's version of the Rex programming language. And spoiler alert, it was fucking awful. Okay, like it, it was not a good language to, to work in, but it wasn't the language that made it. It was what it could do with the rest of the machine. So every program could open up what's called an AREX port. And so it would just add a stack of commands available to this AREX port. All right. So you could have a music program. You're like, I'm going to open up an AREX port. And then you could have a paint program. And it would, I'm going to open an AREX port. And then. It's up to the individual user to determine what they want to do with it. Do they want to like be able to draw a bunch of stuff on the paint program and have that exported as notes onto the music program? No problem. Done. Right. And like there's, there were so many different ports available to so many different programs. And by version two of the OS, it was like, yeah, if you're going to write an application, your application must expose its inner workings as an AREX port. So it was like this intense. Like I look at AppleScript and I laugh. It's terrible. It's nothing like it, right? Why did that fall by the wayside? Like there's Dbus, but Dbus seems like terrible and and no one uses it. Okay, right? I need to know what Dbus is because this is this is causing me problems right now on Wayland in terms of like being able to do screen sharing. Can someone please explain to me? Well, like I was just talking about, except it it's not as well supported. But maybe Dave knows. My understanding of Dbus is essentially it's a bus that allows you to pass messages between programs. So like System D actually uses Dbus a ton. And at a previous job, we'd actually benchmarked it because, you know, we've been talking about, well, gosh, how many messages can we throw through this? And the throughput of it is fantastic. But does it sound as uh, as delightful as what Johnny's describing? Uh not really. It, 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 it's not unpleasant to work with, but, you know, it, you certainly don't think of it as I'm going to tie together all these disparate programs and make something absolutely novel and unique. Yeah, okay, I'm going to try to reiterate what I just heard just to make sure I understand. And for the kids at home, um, the D bus you mentioned is a bus. And this isn't the kind of bus that you need a bus pass for. This is like a message bus. Right. And so like in a message bus is sort of like this thing that's just running and you send it messages and you're like, yo, I want to know about this thing. Who out there in the world can answer this thing? And someone, some other program on the system can say, oh, yeah, I can handle that. Let me let me let me respond to that in some way. So let's say, for example, like I'm running the screen sharing application called Zoom and I'm trying to run it on Wayland. And Zoom is like saying, I need I need the current like screenshot of the screen. And so it, it publishes this message. Give me the screenshot of the screen. It's waiting for somebody to respond to that via Dbus. So Dbus like provides this 
like sort of like intermediate layer where somebody could request something like one process can request something and another process can respond to it without them even having to know about each other. Is that like a fair because I understand message buses, but I, I don't I don't know Dbus specifically. Is this more or less the idea behind Dbus? It, and I know there's so much more to it because there always is more to it. But like hand wavy, something like that. Yeah, I'd say that's uh, fairly accurate. Okay, and then going back to what did you call it, Rex? Yeah, Rex ports, Rex. Oh, so the idea between Rex is you had to expose a port as a way of doing like inter-process communication, or like just like like exchanging messages across uh, network boundary. I'm guessing there was even a network at that time. It was just like, <laughs> like how do I send? How do I find out like what the current screen is showing? You know, or how do I send a message to another process without having any sort of IPC? facilities is that the idea yeah yeah exactly and i it, it certainly isn't a network port but it's just like an agreed upon section of memory i don't uh, know i'm not entirely sure but it's, so like, it's like here's this chunk that like and by opening this chunk i'm going to expose these method calls that like as long as my program is open like you can call these methods and you can expect results and you know expect results from rex but also expect the program to do the thing so right. like that that to me that's like the spirit of collaboration, right? Is it not? It's like you're you're like we're designing this API or like this interface or this contract to say, look, your thing can do the thing, but it needs to be able to respond to other people who want to do your thing. Yeah. Right? It's like uh, you know like okay, yo, uh, Johnny, you're super cool. I want to talk to you about that shirt. How do I get a hold of you? You have to give me your phone number, dude. Right. So yeah. it's like, is that it's is that like a similar analogy in terms of like the design of the language said, like, you need to be callable in some way. And we're going to do it through sections of memory, which I think we call ports. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, again, like, let, let's not get too like hung up on the, the weeds of how it's implemented. Cause I see the hands it's been forever. Yeah. I don't know. We're going to we're going to have to do follow up. It's going to be terrible. No, You're going to get nobody, emails like we're yeah, going to no, fact no. check the shit out of Johnny. <laughs> <laughs> oh god my nightmare <laughs> but do feel free to go into the weeds um that that is literally like the premise of this show <laughs> all right I, yeah this is like the adhd heaven it's like we have like an idea of what we're going to talk about but then we really just talk about whatever mo starts asking questions about because he can't control himself is that it <laughs> <laughs> yeah there, there are really two things to the show one is old man screams at cloud and mm-hmm. the other is, hey, let's talk about this really interesting subset of an operating system or something for like an hour or two. <laughs> yeah, uh, this is perfect. This there, is the kids are saying my wheelhouse. Of this conversation that like that makes me want to do this public service announcement. If you're listening at home in your car, in your bathtub, wherever you happen to be right now, I want you to listen close. If you know a kid out there who has shown some interest in computer whether it's games, uh, phone, whatever, go and buy them your favorite programming book and a piece of hardware so they can program on it. Do that kid a service right now. You know, like whatever it costs you, it's nothing compared to the amount of value you're going to add to that kid's life. So do it. It's most mm-hmm. public service announcement. Do it. <laughs> go to get that person the, uh, the Raspberry Pi so that they can, they can have that Amiga experience in this conversation in 10, 20 years from now like our buddy Johnny. You know, it's true though, because I look back at like just how lucky I was. I'm not 
unprivileged by any extent, but like my family was not rich, right? Not, not, not by, you know, not at all. Like the, the atom that we got was in the clearance bin. Right. And my parents like had to think a long time. It was like, well, we could buy the computer or Shout we out could to bargain finder. <laughs> <laughs> being sold the entire of all places. Like they went for that. And if they hadn't have done that, it would have been a lot different. Right. I don't think I would be, like quite so lucky as I am now. So yeah. you're, mm-hmm. I a hundred percent echo that sentiment. Like a $30, $50 raspberry pie could make the difference between a brutal life and like one that's really good for, I don't want to get all one laptop per child, but like, yeah, the right <laughs> oh, kid. Totally huh, I, yeah. I totally believe that 100% because I feel like in many ways I have the, I was able to live that life, right? It was the outlet that allowed me to get out of my situation. And so I know that exists. So do it. It may not always work out, but it's worth the bet, right? It's worth the hundred bucks to go pick up that kit, and, you know, provide them a little bit of guidance. David, I remember you many years ago, I think you mentioned something about an uncle. Was that an uncle that sort of influenced you or got you that programming book? Or was it, it was your dad, wasn't it? Yeah. So I, I sort of got into it, um, I mean, I, I had a lot of positive influences over the years, but uh, I I have memories of, you know, sitting on my dad's lap as he was just doing his work. And when your first experiences are like, oh, yeah, these computer things are pretty handy, it, <laughs> you know, that that does affect you. And, I, you know, I was yeah. fortunate that um, I mean, I went to a computer camp when I was a kid. Uh, I don't know if that's still a thing, but uh, Can yeah. I <laughs> I missed out. But like, I, I think of just having that positive experience and an adult showing you, hey, this is how you can do this thing. Just feeding the right amounts of information so that you're not uh, overwhelmed, but still you're not overwhelmed. Yeah. And then also, uh, in some ways, I was fortunate in that I just had a whole bunch of spare time as a teenager. And this when I say spare time, I mean, I so I like pushed grocery carts and stuff uh, as a job. And that gives you a lot of thinking time. <laughs> so I bet uh, you're, not, you're not alone, David. Like a, a lot of us had jobs that, you know, allowed us to think, gave us plenty of time to think. We just didn't have the subject to think about. So mm-hmm. I think that's the kernel that you're dropping here is that give them something to think about. Yep. Yeah, if you have something to think about uh, and the time to do it, it's amazing what you can come up with. But yeah, I am a firm believer. I, I know Johnny said, oh, yeah, one laptop per child. But I actually think one laptop per child, um, that was a really positive thing. I don't know if they're still doing it, but I, I hope they are. Because like looking at the design constraints of that, they understood the problem fairly well. Like uh, there was one, uh, like the keyboard had to be away because... Uh, they said, well, what if one one kid's uh, sibling pees on the laptop? Which, yeah, it's gross, but you know, that, that could happen. Um, what if? Yeah. What if? Um, <laughs> what if and, they and don't these, and they succeed, right? Yeah, yeah. Like, it's a laptop for a child, but that thing was running Fedora in the background, if I recall correctly. Um, I mean, th- these were not like those toy laptops you see where it's got the screen that has... It's like a eight row by 20 column screen. And it's like it can do simple math. Uh, the TI-83 is what I like picture. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the TI-80s uh, 
83 is actually fairly powerful. We'll, we'll have to talk about that some episode. And like right now on my desk, I've actually got this. Um, You're playing what, Drug Wars right now, aren't you? Uh, no, no. I've got a, uh, a Sharp Pocket computer PC 1401. Of course. Um, <laughs> that, uh, so this was... Uh, it's an early scientific calculator, but it also has basic. And so it's like one line and you're just trying to plug in basic into it. But it's actually enough that you can you can come up with some pretty nifty programs. Um, certainly having loops does make it a lot easier to uh, do some calculations. So, you know, yeah. we're going to do an episode on the history of basic. I feel like basic comes up so often. It's like an integral part of computer history. That, you know, everyone seems to have some kernel of experience with it, around it, or, or you know, avoiding it. Brain <laughs> damage. Brain damage. Basic yeah. is brain damage. <laughs> but I, it's, I wanna, you know, you, you got to give it credit to where it's, what it's led to, right? Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely. I, I'm a basic kid, and yeah, <laughs> basic represent. Um, so I, I just want to jump back a little bit because we were talking a little bit about one laptop per child. And I want to kind of circle that around into user experience real quick. Okay. So <clears throat> one laptop per child, there's some real UX lessons to be had there. And I don't think it's necessarily that, how can I put this? They done fucked up. Like there's parts to that machine that like, clearly they thought about it. Clearly like some person at MIT Media Lab, just like, yeah, I mean, there's going to be used in, like, the forest and the jungle and the desert and the savanna. Like, we need to make sure that it's a robust machine, blah, 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 which, I mean. Wait, 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 hang on, hang on. I need to level set. What is one laptop per child? Before you before you go into it, I want you to get into it, but I want to make sure that we all know what one laptop per child is. I'm going to let Dave feel that one. I have no idea what it is. I'm sorry. Uh, so one laptop per child, the idea, it, it's sort of in the name, uh, that every child on the planet really uh, would have access to a laptop um, with the idea that it teaches digital literacy as, as a means for, uh, you know, children all over the world to get out of poverty or, uh, you know, a, a, as a better means of learning. And so it's, it's like a way to, like, provide children who don't have access to certain things an opportunity to succeed in something that's booming, right? So it's like getting mm -hmm. them access to this new digital tool so that they can they can make a life for themselves. Is that the idea behind it? Right. And, you know, not just digital literacy, but, you know, a scientific literacy, uh, educational. Uh, I mean, it was really trying to push education through laptops to children in a way that didn't require an Internet connection, right. uh, basically everything that child would need would be there. Uh, it also had some neat mesh networking stuff, if I recall correctly, so that, again, you're assuming if it's a remote village, well, how do you get two laptops to talk to each other? And so it sort of dealt with that. But uh, I'll let Johnny uh, take the floor as to uh, some of the user interface problems. So the 90s were a hell of a decade. And OLPC, in my opinion, was just like, it just kind of, Carried on with the 90s. I mean, there, there's some real heavies that are involved with it, right? Like Alan Kay, Nicholas Necroponte. Like, these guys are like computer, internet, heavy-duty MFers. But they really, really 
didn't like what is their core user their core user is like a child in the dregs of poverty like when you're talking about ux you focus on what does the user need what does the user need how about some clean water right let's start with some basic so clean water maybe some food maybe not be in the middle of the war zone i mean this was their target audience but they focused a lot on like, well, how can we get them a laptop without focusing a lot on their their core central needs, which I have a real fundamental issue with. Now, that aside, okay, I think that this laptop could have been a lot more useful if these people actually went to the different areas they wanted to airdrop these laptops in and embedded themselves inside of that reality for a little while. Because there's a lot of key fundamentals that are completely missing like what language is the os in spoiler alert one language and uh there's a lot of questions about like oh you're not talking about you know, programming language you're talking about like yeah i'm, I'm talking like language, human like, spoken communication oh, right oh, right i was so, the impression that that was actually um that that they did try to localize i don't think they did i don't think oh. they did at all uh, or that the the localization was just like not well thought out at all. Does like localization actually include every language on the planet? Like if we talk about like the Unicode character sets that are out there. Have we captured every village of every town of every place? Well, I mean, no. <laughs> okay, that, that's an easy answer, right? Like the answer to that no. is no, we haven't. But okay, uh, I think Unicode as a character set is doing well. It's not perfect by any stretch, but I mean, it, it, it has in its, it, in its goals and in its mission to be able to like deal with any form of human writing potentially. So, okay. I mean, just, so there's not that. captured it all yet. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, it, like that, that is a really hard problem. There are a lot of languages out there and yeah, but there's, it's, it's more than just that. Like the problem is, is that it's a very like Northern hemisphere, approach to solve a problem that doesn't deal with the problems and the challenges of the global south because it seems like nobody on that project like really looked into it mm. now i'm not an expert so i could be completely wrong fact check email dave don't email me oh no you don't get I'm out busy <laughs> <that is. laughs> at david i don't know i'm busy <laughs> <laughs> I'm just a guest, man. You guys get to take all the fallout for everything I say. Oh no! I'm Scott all the noise we're gonna get after this episode. <laughs> oh no! But um, okay, so just just to go back to it though, there is a real problem with UX peoples, computer peoples, of just like rolling in and think they know the solution to the problem without really putting themselves into the end user's shoes, right? Whether that end user. Right? Yeah, like actually understanding the target audience by experiencing in some sense what they're experiencing and what their needs are. Yeah, absolutely. Like that, that is like the fundamental and it's really easy to fool yourself into thinking that you can get that kind of empathy and you can like think your way through that kind of empathy. And to some extent you can, but I mean, for, for the kind of problem that OLPC is trying to solve, yeah, need to be there, right? You you really do need to experience that. And like the more you can embed yourself into that kind of problem space, truly, the 
better chances you'll have at being able to solve that problem, right? So I, I, I don't like I'm throwing a lot of shade, which is true because like I do see some real fundamental issues there that weren't necessarily addressed and and should be criticized. That said, like it's not a terrible project. Uh, it just made some very very easy to criticize missteps after the fact. Right? I think the point that you're making though, Jonathan, is that like user experience is about empathy and like developing enough experience and or like attaining enough life experience that you can have the right empathy for the target audience. Not like empathy that's you know relevant to your existence or your experience and then projecting that onto an audience that you really you're missing the mark, right? And so the example you're providing is pretty drastic, but I think like highlights what it is. Correct me if I'm wrong. When you're talking about user experience, uh, absolutely. And like, I don't know if if any one of those guys like had to grow up poor, it might have been a better laptop experience, right? Or maybe the, you would deal with some other needs first before you get to the laptop experience, so that they can actually benefit from the laptop experience. Like, where do I plug this thing in? Um, do well, I have... they, yeah, they and they, like they did actually do that pretty well. If, correct me if I'm okay. wrong, but it's crank chargeable, right? I have so no they, idea. You're yeah, telling I, me about I this believe story. it is. Okay. So they, they, it's not that they did a terrible job, right? Like, like Dave was saying earlier, it's it's very well constructed as a laptop. Like it, like you could throw it in the mud and pick it back out again and like actually still have it working. So it's not a complete wash, right? But there was some real. Uh, for lack of a better term, cultural blinders, right? It seemed like they got the hardware just right, but the software they really missed a lot of marks on. Where just like this does not, th- this is not a usable computer for these kids because it's it's not fitting within the cultural context at all, and it's really difficult to make it fit in within their cultural context, right? Get into some like tough tough conversation here now. I think like. Because like we're talking about, we're trying to hit like the the most need, like the people with the most need. But like I'm assuming they hit the local need first. Like there's kids like within this continent that could just need, have access to computers that you know probably don't need water. They're at least they're at least getting drinking water, but they don't have access to, to someone to ask questions or access to even just being on a laptop besides going to the library or stealing it or whatever. Right? Like those kids aren't being missed in this project. I hope. Yeah, yeah. Because that's and pretty, I, I, to me I that's low hanging fruit, man. Go hang out in a staircase at like your local like Calgary like uh like uh like subsidized housing and like th- there's easy target right there. Um, before you start worrying about, I mean, I'm not saying before, I'm not prioritizing. Sorry, I don't want to like diminish the need, but like I guess what's it's interesting to me is like for in terms of impact, because you can make a lot of impact local. Before you try to get like the big bang impact of like the the one that's most deserving or, or more deserving, I don't know. I don't know how you rate this sort of thing. This this is a weird sort of area, uh, a gray area for me. This is getting way off of computing and into politics, but like yeah. I really do have to question the idea of impacting the global south with a very global north idea of the right way of impact. Right. Oh, or like right? our. Like, our like yeah yeah like a projection of what what you need right or, a very troublesome analogy might say like uh there's a lot of landmines here like right <laughs> yeah yeah like it's well i think that 
as software engineers, we have to be real careful of engineer disease. Like this is a real thing where like, I mean, we're, we're into software because we love to solve problems. There's nothing inherently wrong with that, but where's the limit of your understanding yeah. that you can't solve any more problems, right? Like you, yeah. your own, your own understanding, your own empathy, even right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. As from the aspect of a UX designer, your own empathy has limits, right? I don't know what it's like. I, I have no knowledge of the global South, except to say like that it's this massive monolith that I have no knowledge of. And we're yeah. talking about like disparate societies with much disparate needs, but, what am I saying? It's hard. This is a this is a tough subject because we're we're getting into more than just like user experience. We're talking about like projecting uh, values in a way. Like when it, when we're talking about like empathy and trying to understand what the needs are, in some aspect we're we're projecting our own experiences in terms of the values that we assume that they have that they share, and based on those values, what their needs are. Right. So. But, like, the core of it is that, like, understanding the audience, right? And to understand the audience, you almost have to, like, like if I wanted to say, like, I 100% understand the audience, I would have lived their life. And and it's going to be very difficult for any user experience person or, or engineering professional to say that they've lived everyone else's life <laughs> because they're living their own life, right? And so I think um, for me what I'm hearing is, like, start, like, uh, targeting audiences that are at least close to home, to like with relatable experiences and, and gain more life experience. And the more life experience you gain, the more understanding you have of different user needs and those user needs. And, and we're talking about needs here, not wants, right? We're, we haven't yeah. even got to wants yet. We're just talking about like core needs in terms of delivering a value and in the context of software. Well, I and you, hardware because we're talking about one laptop. <laughs> you you a, do really touch on though a real the, the dark side of UX in that like the projection of one's own ideas about the other user's needs like it like there's there's another word for that what's that called it's stereotyping oh my goodness and the dark side of UX is the stereotype it really is there's this concept in user experience called a persona right and mm-hmm. so generally what you do is you go out um, you might visit a few customer sites and you'll sort of collect a, a logbook of, of who your users are, and then you'll like build up this like composite user uh, called a persona. You'll give them a name. You might give them like a face because you want them to be more relatable, and then you give them some needs and there's some some desires and like all these different qualities and attributes. That's a stereotype by a much different, much floofier name, and it's. It's not necessarily bad, but it's a thing that, like, if as a UX person, you don't understand that that's what you're doing, that's deeply, deeply wrong. Does it sort of develop a behavior of thinking about the world in terms of categories and lumping people into broad categories and... I mean that that is like that is essentially the name of the game of a persona is that you're trying to lump people into a broad category so yeah. you, then you can then embody that category and design for that category. The problem is is that like in the race to try to make that category more understandable as a human, you yeah. can end up dehumanizing the audience yeah. which it, like it's it's just fraught territory. So on the one hand, you're trying to understand an audience 
Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, you're dehumanizing that audience by grouping them into a category slash stereotype. Exactly. So, uh, I mean, just like if a software engineering company is trying to sell software to other software engineers just randomly, they're going to have these stereotypical slices and it's going to be like Aldi, the operations manager, and it's going to be like Freddie, the freaky software developer. And but they're all going to be dudes because we all know that it's dudes that write software and like. Uh, 90% of them are going to be white because we all know that 90% of the white guys are the guys that write, write software. The other 10%, they're going to be Indian because that's who writes software and that's who consumes software. So these are our users. But then what happens is that that creates a feedback loop of, well, looks like all of our people are white software developers, except for that one in 10 guy need, you know, it's, it, it's kind of crazy making because it's just a, a, a terrible feedback loop. And no UX designer is going like, <laughs> I can't wait to speak the 14 year words and like, you know, secure the future for our white children by only targeting white guys. Like, that's not what happens. But these systems just like keep on rolling on. And it, it's not great. So the it, personas are, if we've developed these personas based on what is as opposed to what could be then I think what we're saying is we're perpetuating what is, and we are, ex- in a way, excluding or not enabling what could be, and yeah. groups of people or different representations in this particular case. S- sort of, yes. There's also just the challenge of, like, okay, so let's, you know, let's go ahead and try to be really inclusive, right? Yeah. And, and we're going to have, um, I don't know, Calypso the CEO and instead of Calypso being a old white guy with a, a, a very dapper like nice salt and pepper beard it's going to be like a black woman right and that's I mean first of all the name Calypso in this context is pretty troubling but also like there's not that many black CEOs much less black CEOs that are women so then like the argument is like how effective is this persona anyways Right. We're trying to have empathy for this persona, but we're just shoehorning into a different stereotype. And then that just brings up questions of like humans just have these inherent stereotypes about people who are not them. And so if these other personas, you know, embody traits that we don't have, then like just naturally we we go to these traits and we say, oh, well. I mean, clearly she's a sassy black woman who likes to watch Oprah, which is terrible, right? And it's not like this is a conscious thing that happens, but it's a thing that happens. So, so we're getting we the have to be careful. bias, right? And you're talking yeah. about like acknowledging that bias exists and then acknowledging the impact of our bias when we're developing these personas because yeah. they can either amplify a specific ter- stereotype that may or may not be true or they can exclude people based on biases that we're not acknowledging or even aware of when yep. we're when we're developing these personas. And so, wow, I didn't expect to get to this is a pretty heavy topic, Jonathan. And like, I know you fairly well. So like, I, I, I understand, like, for the most part, your view of the world is you're very inclusive in terms of, under, you know, trying to identify and understand people. But like for you to actually just explicitly state these things. You know, and using specific examples, like I'm cringing a little bit in my chair. I'm like, oh, my God, should I be offended? Should I not be offended? Like, is someone offended? 
and and but this is the hard to talk about stuff right Mm -hmm. that either exists and we call it out and just try to have a conversation about it or we i don't know what the inverse is let's i i like the fact that we're um acknowledging it exists so like how do we deal with these biases in your in, in our like user experience understanding and research and 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 why does this matter uh, I don't know how to deal with them necessarily, except, well, first of all, to point them out when they're there, right? But I have and, to ask, why does it matter? And, and this might be a naive question. No, that's that's a fair question. Um, why does it matter? Well, it matters for a lot of different reasons. First of all, like, if, if we want to get down to, like, the most neoliberal answer ever, it matters because if you're trying to sell software and you limit it to, like, one market, like, what's wrong with you, right? Okay, if you're going to limit to that market, you know, for very specific reasons of it's easier to write for that market or whatever, like, fine, right? But if you're going to limit to that market because of your own internal biases, like, huh, maybe that's not such a smart move and maybe you're missing out on other opportunities. And those opportunities translate to um, adding value. That point of view exclusively? We we had some network latency there. Sorry. (laughs) No, no, I was wondering. (laughs) But there's more than just the neoliberal answer. Like, there's also the answer of, like, because that's not a good thing to do, because how can you claim to have empathy for your users if all you're going to do is shoehorn them into these tiny little boxes of... What is today and not inclusive of tomorrow. Or even just, like, Ed, the electrical engineer, who's, like, another white guy with glasses. Like, well, sure, but... There's other options. And, like, I think the thing is, is that you don't want these personas to have, like, that level of detail, right? You, the, you These personas should be f- focusing on their needs and what they're trying to achieve, maybe something of their background, but not very much. And more about that and less about, like, oh, here's, like, this facial complexion with this hair color, right? And this set of outwards gender characteristics, like those are the wrong things to focus on. Does that like impact the the software that you build? Like when you get to that level of granularity? I think that over the next 10 to 20 years, we're going to find out just how deep our biases are going to affect the software that we all write. And, and I, I think, think that you're like, hinting at like the ML models that are, we're going to start depending like our decision making on. I mean, it's already been going on for, like, the past 50, 60 years. All we're doing is we're taking these embedded societal systems and we're just, like, ratcheting up the feedback loops real fast just to make it a lot easier to send the right kind of people to the right kind of prisons. Like, it's... We're baking bias into these data models in a way. Like, we're taking the human biases, in some cases, like, amplifying it because the data sets are coming from a certain group of people amplifying those biases and then projecting those biases through the software decision-making process. I mean, Um, you talk about the data sets, like who decides what data set? I don't know. I don't know these data sets. I I know who decides the data sets because it's me, man. It's like, it's my biases that get to say like, oh yeah, clearly like I need to be talking to these kinds of users or, or whatever. It's engineers who think that they know what they're doing that are choosing the data sets, right? It's, it's scientists who probably know what they're doing, but are really good at fudging data that are providing the data set. 
Well, you only it's, have to look at facial recognition in various cameras and how some people's faces are not recognized by those cameras. Right. Uh, algorithmic bias is uh, it's a very real thing. And machine learning, especially to Johnny's point, data sets. Someone says, oh, we need, uh, you know, a thousand faces to train this one thing. Well, a thousand faces of who? What population? Right. right. What, yeah. Are, are you looking for an accurate population of the city, uh, like an accurate population of the world? And so easy to end up with a biased data set, not aware of it. And then also where you have uh, algorithmic bias where, I mean, this, and this is a real thing where an algorithm will say the neighborhood has crime. So you have to arrest this many people because we know there's this much crime. And of course, because this is happening, it feeds back and it like the crime is increasing because more people are getting arrested. <laughs> like oh, really this. sinister feedback loops. And I mean, this so it, it's not even just you uh, user experience, folks. This is there's lots of people who can play into this chain and it, it's so easy for these biases to creep in and and unintentionally in a lot of cases like i don't think uh, you know people decide ah oh, i'm going to come up with an algorithm that is specifically targeting you know this race or this gender or this political affiliation and i'm going to screw them over but it can happen if you're not paying attention and if, if you're not aware that these things can happen. There, there is a lot of hubris in technology. Uh, I would and go, we're seeing that play out now. I would go so far as to say that it's more than just it can. It's that every day you write code, you are letting your biases creep into the system in some way shape or form every day that you write some sort of ux that you draw some mock-up your biases are implicit in the system in some ways that's why you're hired in some ways like somebody like looked at the code that you produced and said yes this is the this is what i want as part of my company you know please please give me all your biases which i mean that's fine but i think it's really important to to understand that it's not that they may it's that they are right and you have to you have to write code you have to design systems with the implicit understanding that your biases are in there right and with the explicit communication and i'm not great at this by the way i'm like i'm terrible at this i'm not like i'm not opposed to try to help how to do this i'm just trying to get better but how like you have to be explicit about like my biases are here and these are what they are and then There's sort of these biases as well that seem to be like standard or like common in the industry. You know, there's a few terms uh, that, that are used regularly. And sometimes I get upset about them, but I don't want to show it because there's there's alternative terms that actually mean the same thing that convey the same meaning without having to include like these negative biases. And like a specific example is blacklist versus whitelist. Right. When I'm writing code and I have to write blacklist versus whitelist, it actually bothers me. Right. And so like, it's it's a weird thing to be bothered by. And it's also weird to say that I'm bothered by this, but it, it exists. 
And I don't think the authors who like wrote that before me were trying to hurt me or trying to make me feel like bad for my skin tone or anything, but it exists, you know? And another example is I'd like you to spell catalog. Either of you spell catalog. Oh, that's loaded. Uh, Partly because I, so I grew up in the U S but uh, now living in Canada, there are two different ways of spelling catalog, and I'm, there may be more. Exactly, and that's my point. It's like that you don't, unless you're aware of these things, you don't actually understand that you've baked a bit of like bias or your experience in the choice that you've made when you choose whichever version of that spelling or misspelling, whatever you choose, right? And it's the, I think that's the root of what you're saying, Jonathan, is like you're making these decisions without recognizing that you are because it's so normal for you, right? In your world, in your experience, let's say whatever side of the border you're in, it's always spelt this way. It's always spelt that way. Or this term always means this, and this term always means that. But it has it has impact in other, in other areas that we may not have an understanding or awareness of the consequences of that. And so this conversation is just like highlighting that that exists, acknowledging and not like trying to make people feel bad about it, um, but more, I think, like just to make sure that there's an understanding that exists and that the impact of user experience design is acknowledging these. And and I'm guessing to like bridge the gap so that people don't feel offended when they read like the documentation for a certain product and immediately think, oh, I'm categorized as bad. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, That's a very fair. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, as a UX designer, you're your end goal, whether you're known or not, with the kind of software that I'm writing, I need to be able to put the user into the state of flow. And that's that point where the entire world falls away and it's just the user and the task. And I mean, to an extent, the user falls away. It's just the task and the task being completed. If I'm going to put you in the flow state, I can't knock you out of that flow state because I'm using a ham-handed term that has got so much loaded cultural baggage that you're like, huh, am I really just inherently a bad person with the amount of melanin that may or may not be on my skin? That's that's the worst thing ever, right? If your sight is slow and you knock users out of your flow state, well, that's a solvable problem. Um, and like that's just like some engineering time to fix that. If you knock your users out of flow state because you're using like dumbass terms with too much cultural baggage, that's kind of inexcusable, frankly. Right? It's interesting that language is, is is sort of circling back to language. We talked about Rex, the programming language, <laughs> and like its its influence and whether you liked it or not. But language, um, you know, whether it's like la- visual language like colors, uh, or or text or spelling, you know, it was interesting to me when I when I came to the realization. Some like one of my colleagues at in our previous organization or my previous organization hinted to me that red is actually, you know, the, the color that's used for a broken build. It's a, it's a color that's considered royalty in certain cultures. Right. And it's not considered to be a negative, but we put this like negative amplification in it in this particular context. And so I guess I'm asking is like, it, this, does this transcend words, spelling, color? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Like, and, and that's, that is a great example. Like, sure. Red is like a bad color. Why is red a bad color? Cause red means stop. Why does red mean stop? Cause that was an arbitrary color choice that was chosen in the days of like railways. 
right? Uh, and at the same time, like, what is the number one color background and has been the number one color background since, like, at least the year 2000? It's the color white, right? Every every web page has got a background of white because, like, paper is white and, like, white is the, the right color in this context for whatever reason. Turns out, I don't know, white also has the context of death in some cultures. Really? Absolutely. I have I, I no mean, idea. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, like white is is very much a color of death. It's the color of funerals, right? Just just in some cultures, like wow. That that I believe it happens to be the same culture that use red as the very royal com- color, right? Uh, there is no cross cultural color agreement. Color is very very fraught, and uh, I'm. I am very guilty of this. I've used color ham-handedly in the past, but it's very fraught in that like not everybody perceives color the same way. And this is not in a, oh, is the red the same red that you see that I see, man? Whoa. It's like, no, the red that I see looks very much like the green that I see, which is to say they both look gray. So if you try to, if, if you make that a fundamental difference of your application, like that's problematic. I remember when you broke my brain about the color pink and its association, you know, like in terms of like, does color have a gender? And I don't know if you, if you remember that conversation, if you remember what you told me and like, cause I still think about that today. And like, what is the history of the color pink and gender uh, specifically in the context of, you know, where we live? It wasn't, I want to say, up until around the 1930s, 1920s. No, I think even older, perhaps the 1950s, that pink became a girl's color, right? And in fact, I'm pretty sure it's it's around the 50s and maybe even later because Alice in Wonderland, according to Disney, what color is this extremely feminine char- character wearing? I it's honestly don't blue. know. blue. It's blue, right. okay. Cinderella is not in pink. Cinderella is in blue. So in the early 20th, early mid-20th century, blue was considered a softer feminine color because it was like, it was cool and it was gentle, whereas pink was more aggressive because it was like, sure, it was a lighter color, but it was a lighter color of red, a very staunch masculine color, right? And then something happened within the 1950s and the 1960s. And I can't, I don't, there, there is a, if I recall, there's a thing you can point to and say like, okay, that's, that's where the shift happened. And I don't remember what that is, unfortunately, but yeah, there was a big cultural shift and that like, especially around the seventies and eighties, um, when it became, uh, worthwhile and even desirable to really push the gender roles. Like, that's when we started to see, like, pink is for girls, blue is for boys. And it, the weird thing is, is that that that's the that's the narrative, pink for girls, blue for boys. But you go to a toy store, like, you know which aisle is the girls' aisle from across the store. But you don't necessarily know which aisle is the boy aisle from across the store. You have to go up to the toys and see that it's, like, robots and cars and stuff. Right. But, you know, which one's the girl's aisle? I'm listening to this and I'm like, because like you're bringing me back to like 
you know, like the first time you, you explained this to me and I'm like, I know nothing. Jonathan, I can't do anything anymore because nothing that I, I think is right and I'm going to, I don't know how to do this anymore. So I'm like thinking about the UX professional out there who's listening to this and thinking, I can't make decisions anymore because I'm frozen. I don't know what decisions gonna, I'm going to make or like what choice I'm going to make that's going to be offend one person or another. So I'm just, I don't know. I give up. Like, what do you say to that person? Welcome to my brain. <laughs> well, but um, it, is but, it is it worth like trying to understand and address these stereotypes? Is it worth trying to break them? Is yes. it is it worth trying to or just you know play along to them because it sells? Uh, like like if if these are the cultural norms for the target audience, why would you want to break them? See, these that's are loaded just, questions. Yeah, like, I'm not I'm not like speaking based on like my opinion. I'm no, just no, no. throwing these up in the air for you here. These are valid questions. Like. Like, why would you want to break cultural norms, right? Yes. Well, I mean, there's there's kind of an Im- embedded falsehood. There's an embedded, there's an implicit assumption in that that these cultural norms are a worthwhile upholding mm-hmm. and b true. Right. Yeah. Right. Like, yeah. sure, right. they're cultural norms, but are they but are tr- they true? Yeah. That's the part that really you know gets me is like that that moment when I realized pink is not feminine like that was an eye-opening moment for me like this norm that i had like lived with that i had sort of become comfortable with my entire life in question like wow is it feminine (laughs) am i okay with that can i can i reason about that can i can i shift my look at the world now based on this new idea or do i go back to what was comfortable and what changes from here and the, the answer is very difficult because in some ways pink is feminine, right? Mm. Because that is the world that we've grown up in. And I don't want to be all, what about the men's? But I mean, that, that is the world that we've grown up in that pink is feminine. But mm-hmm. on the other side of the coin, like, does Why it have? Right. Do you have the ability to change that? Can you influence change through your decisions in UX? And I'm sorry if I'm speaking over you, but you, you're, you're, <laughs> You cut out, so I'm just talking. <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> you, know, you know what it is? It's my stupid kid playing Minecraft. They're eating uh, up all the bandwidths. <laughs> I can't, I can't, I can't call your kids stupid. Because <laughs> I can't, That's I awesome. can't. They're mine and they're a teenager, so. Uh... Yes, you can. You know, That's awesome. Minecraft is cool. I never, I don't get it. Like I see my kids on it. This is a tangent. Am I going on a tangent? I'm going on a tangent. Going on a tangent. It's, like, <laughs> it's amazing because, like, I watch what they're building and, like, the joy that they get from, like, the act of creation. And that's the joy I had from, like, the first time I made the point of sale a terminal printer print something. It's like I brought this thing to life. I did that. You know what I mean? It's like I gave this thing, uh, you know, life. I made it do something. And it's like kids get to experience that in this virtual Minecraft world. And I hope that they can connect that experience with, you know, experiences similar to me where I can like then turn that into things that I'm creating and enjoying and artistic and sharing with other people. So kids are so lucky. You keep that kid on that, you know, steal all that bandwidth. Tell that kid to take all your bandwidth. <laughs> did, did you know, Mo, did you know that there are people that have built their own processors and computers inside of Minecraft? Somehow I'm not surprised. That's so my, that is so meta. That yeah. is inception. Yeah, Minecraft has this whole system of what's called redstone, and it's basically a wire. 
And then there's a torch, which is basically a, a, a negator, right? So if you have a redstone torch next to some yeah. redstone, it turns it on or off depending on what the signal is. And then there's a few other rules around redstone um, that are just very basic. And like from there, you can start to build up your AND gates and your NOT gates and your OR gates. And then from there, like like there's a couple of different transducers and like, yeah, I think we're at the point now where you can play Minecraft in Minecraft so that you can punch wool while you punch wool. Like it's just, it's, it's nuts now. Actually, this is an interesting thing. I don't know the history of Minecraft. Um, does anybody here know the history of Minecraft and like why it was created, who created it, what was their motivation and what was their target audience? Yeah. And this, I think it's a circling back to user experience and like, I don't know if this matters or not, but like, when that person was creating this thing that's sort of taken over the world, were they thinking about UX? Were they thinking about a target audience? Were they thinking about um, how this thing was going to impact the world? And if not, did it? does it matter? Or would it have been better if they, if they did or didn't? Go. Uh, that's a really tough question to answer, Like especially the second one. The first one is easy. Uh, no, they didn't. They admitted as much. Um, there was a there was a lot of questions like the guy's name the Minecraft guy's name is Steve. When he gets hurt, he mm. gets he like he said he had right. very male uh, noises at first, right? And that right. like that was a thing. And uh-huh. people then asked like, "Geez, I never thought about that." Hey, wait a second! Like, why is he a dude? He's very clearly has a mustache. Very clearly has a very low masculine voice. And he was oh. like, "Well, I, you know, I wasn't thinking about that when I wrote it." And like this kind of goes back to implicit assumptions. Like I need a wow. person. Well, yep. well I, I'm a dude, so I'm just gonna make my person a dude because we need a dude here. So like, what how many times it's have been if he chose uh, a different gender? And yeah, this is like a hypothetical because we don't know the answer. We can't predict the answer. So here's the other thing: Why does he need a gender? Why does why it need a gender? Right. Why can't they just be a they? That's a good question. You know, like I've watched my both my daughters play this game for years now, and I had never even thought about this in terms of like, here's the character that they're playing, and do they identify with the gender, and does it matter to them? It doesn't, because they love the game. They can even play it. But in some ways, does that impact them in some way? I don't know. Yes, and also Minecraft did a really good job of like removing gender from that side of the equation pretty quickly. Right. Like why? once you got hit, it was not like you didn't have like a masculine noise anymore. It was that like that got changed to a very generic sound of like your character got hit. Mm -hmm. Right. So So this idea of like gender didn't even matter is I think is what you're saying. It's like you could remove the gender from the character and the game still enjoyable. Yeah. And it's relatable still because it's not it's you don't have to feel like you're excluded. Um and you don't have to feel like you're included. It's you can still enjoy it regardless of what gender you identify with. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> so now thinking about like a beast like Microsoft and they have to spend money to actually make that decision and do that work. And how do you justify that decision for them? Is it for the greater good or is it for money? Like, can you say that like thinking about these things like bias in user experience actually pays off in terms of dollars and I, should... I would go so far as to say it doesn't matter yeah right like sure 
as workers for a company, like we have to increase shareholder value. Yeah. But we are not just workers for a company. Like yeah. we are people with ethics, with morals, with with moral duty. So yes, of course, like we still have to make money. That's why we're being employed. But also like we have to make decisions that like we are comfortable with. Right. Right. We have to make decisions that uh, that that we're on the hook for. If yeah. I make a decision that like causes people to be killed, that's on me. Yeah, right? it's hard and, to disconnect from. Yeah, that. and wow. of course, like no nobody's getting killed over Minecraft. But it's hard to say. But like, who knows <laughs> if like there's AI in Minecraft that's being resold into AI for automobiles or something else, right? It's it's really hard to say. Like the decision that you and I are making today as programmers, what the future impact of that decision is, because it's we don't know where that uh, code, that idea could impact. And are we going to be okay with living with those decisions? For example, the K-Cup person, the person who created the K-Cup, the uh, Keurig coffee machine, who's then gone on to say, I wish I had never created this thing. They were probably at the time focused on uh, solving an engineering problem, right? And just conquering that engineering problem. And there was satisfaction in terms of like conquering that engineering problem without really thinking about the future consequences to the environment and, and the world. And it, I bet it was satisfying to ship. But now in hindsight, that, uh, that person is like, no, I, I wish I never created this thing or at least shared it with the world. I don't so know how here's to, the thing. It was satisfying to ship. And I will say absolutely yes. Yep. But that is where that entire thing fell apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's, and I wonder if that's where the whole one laptop child fell apart. It's like, okay, we shipped it. We solved the problem. We right? made things but better. Yeah. Yeah. Did, Tap me did on you, the back, Johnny. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but did we really? Like the yeah. fundamental thing uh, that I've learned about UX is like, it's one thing to ship a thing. And then kind of dust off your hands and be done with it. It's another thing entirely to say, okay, here it is. How are our users using it? Did we meet that need? And what were the unintended consequences? And that's that's a feedback loop. I think it's that feedback loop that like helps us deal with these problems and with these biases. Like if you have that feedback loop, then within yourself, within your company, within your product within your family, within your society, then it allows people to make intelligent decisions and it allows people to look back and be reflective about their decisions. And learn from them and to make better decisions. Exactly. Is it okay if I add that? Yeah. And just to just to like put a nice perfect capstone on my giant pyramid of UX wisdom, <laughs> such as it is, that the last bit is about listening. Thank you so much, Johnny. This has been uh, a heck of a episode, I gotta say. I am so sorry. I don't think you guys are ready for fucking social justice, Johnny Scotch guy. But here you are. We might have to fork this podcast into like social justice cyber dealer or something. Social justice Scotch cyberdelia with Johnny. Social justice does factor into it, I think, because, I mean, at the end of the day, computers 
help you accomplish something, but you have to say, what is that something that's being accomplished? And uh, you realize it's it's actually merely a bit part in you know civilization at large. Uh, <laughs> yep, guys, uh, I gotta say this has been a lot of fun. Uh, I thank you so much for having me. Um, hopefully, we get to do this again. I hope so because we did not have time for Emacs versus Vim. <laughs> and I know you guys called me out. It's there in episode two. One day, one day, the battle lines will be drawn. <laughs> two against one. We got to get another Emacs person on the call on that call. Mm-hmm. Okay, but before I do, I, go, talk about I, do have, I do have to drop that. Like Vim has got some of the best keyboard and command methodologies ever, and doesn't hold a candle to Emacs. So I, I like straight up respect that. All right, you heard John A. Vim's the best. Uh, I, yep, <laughs> I'm gonna selectively edit so it's just Johnny saying Vim is the best. <laughs> <laughs> No, oh, I won't. Cool. Um, so, uh, what things were uh, this episode brought to you by? The editor email. Okay. <laughs> uh, what else was today's episode brought to you by? Uh, sat solvers. Go look up your favorite sat solver. Do a Sudoku solver. It's good for you. This episode is also brought to you by RSS, the uh, really simple syndication, I think it's the acronym. Uh, it, it's a great way of keeping up with things you want to know about, such as podcasts. Rest in peace. Yes, indeed. It's also brought to you by the YouTube channel How to ADHD. Oh, I love that channel. That oh, my channel God. changed my life. Oh, my it's goodness, Johnny. It's in the middle of changing my life right now. Oh, my goodness. That channel like, helped, me, helped explain me to me. Uh, yes. Have you got Plus, an official diagnosis or something? Yeah, I'm type two. I'm I'm on ADHD meds. You can publish that shit. Holy uh, shit. Yeah, I, I have. I need to like talk to my doctor about that, but I haven't like it's... found the perfect way to talk to my doctor about that yet because uh, I'm too busy brain cracking it because of my ADHD. It's amazing <laughs> how much like just understanding after that diagnosis, how much it's helped me improve me in my day to day. Do it. How <laughs> to yeah. ADHD and then go talk to your doctor. Yeah. Yeah, my kid got diagnosed, and I'm like, huh, this is explaining a whole lot. The apple doesn't fall far from this tree, let me tell you what. Yeah, yeah. the sooner you understand and, and sort of get, like, you sort of get this acceptance, finding that community, uh, it all makes sense. My impulsiveness, oh, my goodness. Yep. So, we could do a whole episode on this. I'm happy to talk about SSRIs and ADHDs are Let, interesting topics to me. Let's do that because computer guys are not neurotypical by any stretch of the imagination. I think if you're not somewhere on the autism spectrum, you're probably somewhere on the ADHD spectrum. Yeah, and I think that's part of what the like the en- this like weird like community of software engineering like what drew me to it is that it's not neurotypical, and I am not neurotypical. I am ADHD. I am ODD. I am probably other things I haven't been assessed for, and that's why I feel so at home at. In software engineering, even though I'm so like I don't have the regular origin story, it drew me in, right? And there's so many people in this in this industry that I think are not neuroatypical, and in some cases, until they you know connect with other people who are not neuroatypical and actually talk about these things, they they sort of feel like they're not quite right. So we got to do a talk about this yeah. because 
I don't know. I'm happy to talk about my experience. <laughs> let's let's mm-hmm. let's save that for the next episode for sure. This episode is also brought to you by Audacity, the sound editor. Um, we, I've been using it to uh, edit the shows, and you know, I gotta say, it for the for what it provides, it does a pretty fine job. So, uh, shouts out to Audacity. Yeah. All right. For the Golang people, I hate your diffs. I hate looking <laughs> at your diffs. There's too many spaces. Like seriously, settle down on the white space. It pisses me off. Sorry, that's all I have to say. For what I just said about Go, there is one program I do like written in Go. It's called Dive. Dive is like a, a I don't know who the author is, but you can actually analyze your Docker images layer by layer, and you can actually see it uses like curses the curses library to actually analyze. Here is all the the size of the files that were just dropped in this layer, and it's amazing. Go check out Dive, D-I-V-E. On that, uh, thank you very much for listening. Uh, Look forward to the next episode, and uh, have a uh, great time. Uh, Happy uh, spring solstice. (laughs) I love her awkward send-off. It's perfect. This is even awkward. (laughs) Like, we don't have, like, this polished goodbye, and that's our send-off. I wish we had something like Avdi, who's like, happy hacking. Or, but no, we don't. Like, this is perfect. It's awkward. Bye. Peace. If you're still listening to this, <laughs> you should probably go home now. Like, just wherever you are, like, you get out of your Uber, get out of your car, go walk in your house and hug your family. Peace.